Welcome to The Cannabis Professor, a marijuana science and culture podcast, broadcasting from the state of Pennsylvania to the rest of the nation and the world. My name's Scott, I'm your professor, and um, you ever wonder when you consume marijuana exactly what's happening in your body? You ever take in one form of cannabis or another and wonder why, why was it different? Why isn't it always just the same experience? Well, today we're going to pick up where we left off from absorption a couple episodes ago and take a zoomed in look at the endocannabinoid system in uh, part one of a couple of uh, pieces we're going to have to take a look at it in. But today we take a look at receptors and the endogenous ligands that bind to them. Now that, my friends, is quite a book-level mouthful. And don't fret, you know, hopefully I didn't lose any of you, uh, because really this is uh, getting into what really happens when cannabis or things like cannabis actually affect the body. Like, how does it intimately interact with the body? Why does what we experience happen? And maybe, if we're lucky enough, we may understand exactly what we may think moving forward in case we ever want to look into utilizing new methods or upping or lowering dosages, kind of what's the biological cost of some of these thoughts, feelings, and opinions. Now, the reason why we're starting with receptors uh, is because it's all about communication. Really, a lot of this stuff that we talk about is a fancy way of thinking about communication because if you have anything which is not produced in the body, whether it be sound, light, food, whatever it may be, when it interacts with the body, it creates changes. And if you don't notice the changes, it might be because it wasn't you know, pushing hard enough. But once it creates a change, that's when usually our perception will kick in. And there's a lot that may be going on underneath of that. Dare I say sometimes, changes are happening that we are so unaware of. It may be very much more of an explanation as to why we think, feel, act the way we do versus what we perceive is the reason. And for me, I'm eternally curious about these sorts of things because there have been times where the same bag of weed, the same, you know, capsule seems to affect me differently no matter, you know, depending on time of day. If I use it at breakfast or at dinner, I have a different experience or if I'm stressed versus if I'm tired. Uh, I've had situations where a full or an empty stomach could be enough to change an experience. And so I'm always wondering, you know, is it really me? Is it really the weed? Like, what? where exactly is the line between these? And so the receptors are really kind of the doorway that chemicals and other things will knock on to try to interact with our body. Because although things absorb in, the real intimate biology and the reactions happen once you try to affect the cells. Because in a way, although the body is, you know, full of motion systems, kind of like a car, you know, a car is many systems, you have your heating and your cooling, you have your electrical system and your intake and your exhaust in a vehicle. And, you know, we made them in our image. Our bodies are a marriage of a lot of systems working together. Because dare I say, when we run into malady or injury, usually one of those systems is no longer functioning at its maximum level. It's been injured, it's been affected somehow. And the endocannabinoid system really comes into play big time whenever we're looking at the function and dysfunction of the body. That being said, what exactly is the endocannabinoid system, right? Since we have things like our 
uh, nervous system and our respiratory system. And, you know, those are things we're more familiar with. They teach them in school. Well, it wasn't until the early slash mid-90s that the endocannabinoid system really was defined in its first place. So this is a very, very young science. Now, although saying things like the endocannabinoid system, and I'll say ECS at times just to make it easy on my, uh, my tongue and throat, you know, we don't really learn about it too much, but a system, you know, there's sort of two ways to look at it. The one way is what's the system's function. And the list of functionality is going to be very familiar, especially to those who've used marijuana before, because the endocannabinoid system mainly deals with regulating, you know, it's more of a supervisor, but it regulates appetite, sleep, pain, mood, memory, and also can do things like promote homeostasis, which is the body's tendency to seek or maintain balance against outside or sometimes internal factors. You know, sort of like if it gets hot outside, you sweat to cool yourself down. If you, uh, you know, start running low on energy, your body triggers your leptin and ghrelin cycle and you get hungry and then you want to eat or you get thirsty and you want to drink. And, you know, easy example, you, uh, you stay up for 20 hours, you do a bunch of fatigue-laden work. Eventually, your body kind of makes you feel tired and you want to go to sleep, recharge and refuel and heal. So this is, again, not necessarily that the uh, endocannabinoid system makes you do these things, but it manages these things. So, you know, if you look at a business, you know, like a department store, you know, there's many departments. There's shoes, uh, there's clothing, there's suits, formals and children's. And each department might have its own little manager, you know, to help it function as it will. But there's usually always a store manager, right? Somebody who's overseeing all of the departments. And although that store manager doesn't work in any department in a dedicated fashion, they might jump into this department and, and take it over for a weekend to improve its function. Or they might, you know, micromanage this department because it just happens to be, you know, this pebble in their shoe today. Whatever the case is, there's a level of autonomy and a level of management that's assumed in that situation. And in the body, as they studied it, they found a lot of these systems, you know, clearly the respiratory system with the lungs, you know, the nervous system with our nerves and our brain and our spinal cord. But it doesn't mean that they understood exactly, you know, who told which one to take the spotlight at what point. They didn't, they didn't see who was directing the show. They just saw the actors. And so the endocannabinoid system, as you can tell, could be very, very sneaky, almost passive, because... It's never going to jump in front of any other system. It just kind of diverts and encourages focus of the body to help maintain health and really growth and everything else that we really try to do for our benefit of the host of the human body and the individual. Now, that's its purpose. But from a technical aspect, the way they define the endocannabinoid system well, there's no organ, right? Like the lungs are part of the respiratory system, but there is no endocannabinoid like piece of meat that you could like cut out. Uh, this system is really comprised of receptors and the things that bind to those receptors. So it's a lot more like um, the male than it is like a house where it's about communication. It's about reception. And so you would imagine when a manager has a job, you know, they don't have a broom. They might not even have a uniform. Their job is mostly just managing, right? It's communicating. Some things come from the top down. Some things come from the bottom up. And that's in the same way 
where sometimes you're like, I have a thought, right? Maybe you're, say you're a baseball player. I want to throw a baseball. So a command comes from the command center of your brain and goes to your hand and you throw. But then some other times it comes from the ground up, like maybe you're cooking in the kitchen and you touch the hot burner. You weren't looking, you grab a hot pan or something without a proper protection and you burn your hand and you pull your hand away. It wasn't a thought you had willfully. You didn't think I want to burn my hand. Obviously, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. But the message goes from the ground up to tell your body to react. And so we know that the endocannabinoid system has both possibilities to it, as well as a lot of systems in the body. But this system is mainly cellular receptors and the things which recept. And at that point, I think it's best to sort of switch our metaphors for a little bit. Because now when we're thinking about reception, we're thinking about what happens at the cell. Now we should really just think about the cell on its own. So, you know, throw on your thinking caps, kick away some of those other ideas. And when I think of a cell, I think of sort of like a house, let's say, right? House has windows, house has doors, maybe even has like a fire escape or a basement exit. But a house has many different points that you can interact with it, right? You can knock on the wall, you can open a window, you can close the blinds, uh, I can put mail through the slot, I can ring the doorbell, I can knock on the door, I could lock a door. You know, it's multi-port. In that way, it's almost like a laptop. You have USB-A, USB-B, USB-C, micro-USB, mini-USB, you know, all these sorts of ways to interact with the house without necessarily going inside of it. Because although our cells have a cell membrane, and it's hopefully well known that it is semi-permeable. You know, it doesn't allow most things in, but sometimes it can open up and allow certain things to move to and fro, mostly much like your house. Your house is there to protect you from the outside. You may open a window, but you're not going to like kick down a wall if you need some more air, just like in a cell. It uses the receptors much like we use doors, where sometimes it opens it for a crack, for some air, some light. Sometimes it's just taking the mail through the slot or it's looking at somebody through the peephole and doesn't want to let them in or it's locked and nothing happens, right? And nothing's going to be able to interact with that house. And so there's many states of interaction. There's many ways interaction can be perturbed and the variety of these things, these relationships is really where we start to see the variety of why cannabis seems to constantly be in flux. You never get the same high twice necessarily, but it, they're all very similar in a way. And I'd say it's just like uh, your favorite food. You know, let's say pizza. Pizza's well known enough. Most pizza's easy to identify, but it never really tastes the same. You know, they're all versions. And even if the same person made the same pizza, it would taste just like the last time. But we know that it's not the same exact pizza as last time. So there's always going to be some level of skew, some level of change some level of variety that I hope we can welcome because with cannabis, variety is certainly our strength. You know, the fact that it changes just like we do all the time, you know, can keep up seemingly with the varied human experience. So these receptors, right? Uh, from a basic level, uh, the cells have many types of receptors and they're kind of broken down into four categories. Uh, they have these intracellular receptors, which means they're receptors inside the cell. You have enzyme-linked receptors that enzymes can interact with. You have ligand-gated ion channels. And a ligand is a type of uh, thing. If, if a receptor is there, this is like the transmitter to it. It's 
kind of what goes to a receptor is called a ligand. So there's an ion channel, which is sort of like a weird, sort of like floodgate. And then you have what we're going to talk about, which are called G-protein coupled receptors, also known as GPRs or GPCRs. These are the type of receptors that cannabis and weed interact with specifically. Now, there are a bunch of other receptors out there. We had just mentioned four major categories, but each one of those categories, you know, has a list of members that is very, very long. Uh, in G-protein-coupled receptors alone, there are hundreds which are identified, as in, like, we know they're there, but we really don't understand what they do. We see things go to them and leave. It's almost like you're spying on a house. You see traffic in the driveway, right? Somebody's going up and knocking on the door and leaving, but you don't necessarily know what's going on in the house when that person arrives or leaves. You're just seeing it from the outside. So it takes a while to decipher this kind of language of the body. And when cannabis comes in, and you're thinking of this house, right? Cannabis walks up to the front door of a G-protein-coupled receptor and knocks on that receptor and says, hey, I got a message. Now, for me, I think more of the things that, like, you know, go in the cell and leave the cell because that, that's a really intimate process. And when I eat food or when I take in smoke, I kind of think of the same way. Like, it becomes a part of me, right? And that's not completely accurate because... Although there are some things which truly, you know, resources-wise, protein becomes part of my muscles and water hydrates me, you know, it's getting inside the cells, it's doing things, it's making new cells. Well, that's not how the endocannabinoid system works. So we said this is a manager, it's not a manufacturer. So this is managing those processes, but it isn't necessarily going inside the cell. Like your cell doesn't have THC in it. It technically never will. Now, we do know that THC stores in fat cells sometimes, more so in the outer linings, but it's not really absorbing into us where, like, you're turning green like the Hulk or anything. That's not the case. Um, what really happens is what they call this second messenger signaling amongst other complexities, and it's much more like the mailman. So follow me down this little bit of a metaphor. Imagine this house again. This is one of your human cells. And as we said, there's windows, there's doors, there's many different varied points that you can interact with it. So each one of those is a different receptor. Your windows are one type of receptor. Your front door is another one. Your back door is another one. Your doorbell is another one. Whatever the case is. And now, the mailman comes up. The mailman is this ligand, this messenger, this thing which is going to interact with the receptor. And what does the mailman do? Well, the mailman drops off mail. Male woman, potentially, as well. I want to be inclusive, of course. And so now you have a letter through the mail slot, through the receptor. They knock on the door. Message. And now you take that letter. And for most of us, you know, I live with somebody here, my wife. You may have roommates, or if you live at home with mom or dad or your, your siblings or children, you know that you might get a message and it's probably not always for you. So the first thing a lot of us do, right? We, we check who the message is for. So the male person is the first messenger. You know, they came to the door, the ligand came to the receptor and signaled something communicatively into the cell, into the house. Now the person in the house is taking the message and becoming the second messenger. And this means there's a lot more complexity, obviously. It's not just hitting the button like on or off with like a light switch. Uh, now the male 
needs to be interpreted and passed along to whoever's attention it's required. So inside the cell behind these G protein receptors, they have what is an alpha unit and a beta gamma unit. So two kind of units that we're focusing on and they are the second messengers. When a you know male gets dropped off at the cell through the G protein receptor, they take the message and run around the cell to figure out who it's for. Oh, this is a bill for Amy. She lives upstairs. And then you run the message up. Or, oh, this is, a, this is a new credit card for Billy. He lives down in the basement suite. And you take it down there. But you haven't really done any work. You haven't created any changes biologically. You're still just carrying the communication from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell. So it's from exo-communication to intro-communication or endo, as they might also say. And now they run around the cell and deliver it to whatever other part of the cell, the nucleus, uh, the ribosomes, whatever it may need, will get the message and then use it. You know, maybe you pay the bill, maybe you got to write a message back, whatever happens. So sometimes the message just stays in the cell. Sometimes the message gets a return to sender. And sometimes the message just gets an answer, which is different than the message. So sometimes, you know, it's just the information coming in, but oftentimes information comes in and information leaves. You know, there's some mail for the male man or male woman to take back with them. So this is a constantly going on stages and forces, which means to be able to try to say, well, what if I smoke this joint? What exactly is going to happen? It's like, oh, if, if I just tell you that the mail is going to get delivered, I can't tell you what's in the package. I have no idea. That's really never going to be able to be guessed or predicted. We're always going to have to allow for that level of like, I don't know, I just got to see what happens because that's, you know, you can't open other people's mail. So we're never really going to know exactly down to the, you know, mathematical accurate number what is going to happen in that. It's a splay of this because this is just happening at one receptor, mind you. There are potentially 10 to 40,000 receptors in some instances, on certain cells in the body. And then we have, you know, millions and trillions of cells. So it's not really a matter of, you know, what's in one letter, but it's a matter of like how many people are delivering mail and how many people are opening the letter at the same time and how many of them are bills versus how many of them are like get well cards or how many of them are, you know, paychecks. All of these things are constantly going on, creating almost like a kaleidoscope of colorful variety in effects. You know, some of them act different when it's in your brain and the cells are doing that kind of reception versus if it's in your fingernails or if it's in your groin or if it's in your bloodstream. You know, all of these areas are going to recept through a G protein coupled receptor. But these are all different houses, right? And all different messages going to each house, constantly changing tens of thousands of times a second. So we're never really going to try to guess exactly what happens. We're always going to allow... I hope for all of us, the song to be played and we're just going to listen to that music and not try to jump on the next note and say, I knew it was going to play that note. It's, it's really not, not what this is for. Now, the endocannabinoid system, as we said, it's these receptors, these G-protein coupled receptors, and the things that bind to them, what we call endocannabinoids. Now, there's sort of a little bit of explanation required here because these receptors, well, how do they get their name, right? How do we know that they're a part of this system? And this really takes us a step back into what is the basic ass level of science that is utilized. I mean, for me, you know, I, I work in the medical marijuana industry. I talk to a lot of medical professionals. And I think, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, my assumption was that people 
who, you know, get these big, big old degrees, these white coat, these suit kind of degrees where you need a master's or a PhD. And you, you seem like one of these upper echelon members of society, right? You're kind of the dream. Become a doctor, become a lawyer, become a politician. And my thought was always that, well, the people who do those are worth looking up to, right? They're, they're worth envying in a way, not just because of the paycheck, but because they're, they're experts, they're professionals, they're people who really seem to like know their shit. And assumably, at least my poor assumption, was that these people want to know more. You know, that's how they got to the top of these games, these harder career fields. It must have been because of like a passion. And I kind of feel like with TV and the procedural crime dramas and political thrillers and medical dramas that I kept seeing TV sort of show these very focused individuals always wanting to cure diseases and like figure out the mystery. They, they always want to get their man. They always want to know that, you know, the work was done to the best of its ability. But after having dealt with medical professionals a while, and certainly my parents also having been nurses, I think one was a registered nurse. My mom still works at a hospital in her late sixties. And my, my dad, uh, rest his soul, he was a licensed pool nurse. So, you know, there was always a little bit of medical ideology floating around the house. Well, they took their job seriously. They want to heal people. They want people to do well. They absorb some of the stress of the job personally. But that's not everyone. Remember, it is a job. It's something you do for money. It doesn't mean it's a way of life. It doesn't mean it's like your number one sole purpose. Some people are just good at math and science, and they just do medicine because it's easy, not because they're like at home scratching at the walls about trying to solve the next mystery of like the incurable disease. So in that same thought process, when we're going through some of the history of science, it's good to remember that not everybody who was studying it or researching it was necessarily all about it. Some of them are just doing their jobs, nothing special. And it really feels like that was the case the day they decided to name shit. Because I thought, okay, what is the endocannabinoid system? Receptors and the things that bind to them, these ligands. And I thought, well, how do you know it's a cannabinoid receptor? So here I look into the history of weed, and lo and behold, you may have heard this in one of the previous episodes, you know, they made weed illegal and had no idea where it went. They just made it illegal because of the outer behavior, right? Because really a racist war on immigrants, on black people, uh, truly is the case. A great example of how Harbolt started and how Harbolt continued. So finally in the 80s and 90s, you know, some good old scientists who really did care said, well, where does cannabis go? How does it make you high? Because we've, we've just been outlawing it constantly, but we have a very poor understanding of exactly how it interacts with the human body. So what they do is they, you know, put some cannabinoids in the body and they try to see where they go. And they find they go to these receptors. And so they start listing the receptors, but just because it goes somewhere doesn't mean that's its home, right? I go to work. That doesn't mean I live there. I go visit a friend's house. That doesn't mean that's where I want to go. So cannabinoids, you know, the molecules that get come from cannabis, um, they go to many places, not just to the endocannabinoid system. They interact with many systems in many ways, but they go to some places which seem very specialized, almost like a lock and key, like it's only supposed to work for these doorways. And whenever they find that relationship, that's when they label it. So cannabinoid receptors are simply classified as receptors that cannabinoids go to. It's not like they look a specific way or they act a specific way. It's defined by its relationship 
to the visitor, to the ligand, to the thing that is recepting. So if a cannabinoid, THC, or a molecule like that goes to receptor constantly or preferentially or primarily, that receptor at some point may be classified as a cannabinoid receptor. And if you have a cannabinoid receptor and you know it's a receptor after observing it for, for a while, and you notice that there's other things that go there, you might be able to find one of those ligands. They actually call them orphan ligands or orphan receptors when they don't know exactly what the relationships are. It's kind of a cruel way to name them. Uh, but if you have one of these you know, ligands out there, and it, you go to a cannabinoid receptor, you now may be suspicious or suspected to be a cannabinoid. So it can kind of work both ways. Once you know the receptor, you can start classifying some of the binding relationships, uh, the ligands out there. And if you know the ligand, you might be able to define a receptor if that's its primary target. So it's, it's a very basic way of naming things. It was the same thing with opioids and nicotoid receptors. They saw people using opium. They said, where does the opium go? Oh, it goes to these places. Oh, these other things go there. Oh, we'll call them the opioid receptors just based on opium. So it's a very, you know, kind of follow the string to the cup. Nothing too crazy there. But that also means that there's a lot of other interactions beyond the endocannabinoid system, which also create the effects that we are used to having or that we've had in the past. Thus, when something binds to a cannabinoid receptor, it usually you know, technically then is interacting with our cannabinoid system. And really, there's only two receptors that they've identified. So as I said, it's been very short science. 1993 or five to present day is only about 25, barely even coming up on 30 years in a couple. And so they've only found two technical receptors, although I have a hot tip on a third one. And they are called cannabinoid receptor one and cannabinoid receptor two for short CB1 and CB2. And technically those are the only two members of the receptor club in our bodies right now for cannabinoids. There are also ligands in our body that are endogenous, just like the title of the episode said. And endogenous means, well, endo means inside. Uh, Genus kind of means generated. So they are cannabinoids that are made in our bodies versus the fact that we use cannabis, obviously, and that provides us a lot of biologically active molecules that usually provide the high, the euphoria we're used to. But you have to think, well, why would cannabis create an effect? We must already have like a a receptor that if you tickle it just the right way, it it makes you feel high. Because it's not like you can add a substance to the body and create a new effect. The body has to be able to create that effect beforehand. You know, it's sort of like a TV can't really show you a TV show that's not already being broadcast. It can't make it up on its own. It only reflects what already exists. Uh, And in that way, the possibility of having cannabinoid receptors and everything was already in our bodies. If anything, we're just using a plant to trigger an entire system which was already working. And in that way, we are mimicking effects that we already feel because we already have an entire part of the body which does this just just underneath of what we can understand. Although sometimes it is screaming in our face, depending on who you are. So we have two receptors we're thinking about. There are also, at least for just the sake of brevity, we're going to look at two of these endocannabinoids, these ligands that are endogenous, 
these substances which our body makes. And they do fit a pretty nice model because most of the time when we're talking about weed, we're talking about THC and CBD specifically. Now, For those of you who've been following around long enough or are just dead plain curious, you probably did run into, you know, other things like THCV or CBN, some of these other cannabinoids, and I've certainly talked about them in some previous episodes if you ever want to backtrack into the catalog. But here we're going to really focus on THC and CBD, you know, for the sake of just keeping our language nice and tight, because as we said, they are understudied despite being primarily the only things that have been studied. So we have CB1 and CB2 on one side of the page, right? And THC and CBD on the other ones. And somehow, these four things interact and create most of our high, is what it seems. But before THC and CBD could come in and create a high, we already had those doorways, which I mentioned. And so there were things that went there already. And those two things are called AEA and 2AG. Now, those are things our body produces. So in a way, it's like our natural THC and CBD. Now, AEA is the one we're going to talk about first because it is really close to being THC. It's actually better than THC in the way it interacts with the body. It's more efficient. It's more effective. It's like the sweetest sugar you can get versus the saltiest sugar. It's just better at what it's trying to do. So if we were to have THC and AEA in the same room fighting for a receptor, AEA would beat it there most of the time. You know, you'd have to take in quite a bit of THC to even get that musical chairs winning because AEA is so much better. It's, I mean, we, it, we literally produce it. So it's meant to go to these sites and do the work primarily. It is really the full timer at that job. Now, AEA is short for anandamide, also known as arachidonyl ethanolamide. Uh, and it sucks because I try to memorize it to impress people at parties and there's no more parties. However, AEA or ananda is what's called the bliss molecule. And so it is kind of what makes you feel happy and high in that way. It's a, it's a mood booster. It's euphoric. Uh, it also helps with, obviously, mood, memory a little bit, because if you're stressed and pissed off or if you're happy, you're going to have different accesses to your memories. You know, appetite. Sometimes you eat when you're happy. Sometimes eating makes you happy regardless. Uh, it messes with sleep. It messes with all of these things. You know, the main things that the endocannabinoid system is responsible for. Now, AEA, or anandamide, is also found just a little bit, in traces of it in dark chocolate, which some folks say, well, that's probably why people love dark chocolate so much. It, there isn't that much in there. It doesn't seem like there's enough to really create that feeling, technically. However, science is an observable study. It can't define things as well, so it may very well trigger... Uh, reaction in the body which could make somebody perceivably happier but they usually say it seems to be under the threshold of how much you need to really feel it and then strangely enough you also find AEA in fruit flies but they don't have any endocannabinoid system to be able to receive it so it's kind of weird they would make a substance that doesn't seem like they can use it but of course we're still scratching our heads because the science is rather young so now we have AEA the natural human THC, anandamide. And what happens is, you know, let's take a birthday, for instance. You know, you have your birthday, and it's a good day. And so you have a, a boost in your mood. 
but it doesn't last all year, obviously. You know, maybe it lasts most of the rest of the night. And so you might have had this production of anandamide come up. Uh, it only really lasts in the body around 30 to 90 minutes as a half-life. So you're not going to be happy for the rest of the year just because you had your favorite cake and hung out with your friends and got a really cool gift. Most of the time, you might not even be happy the rest of the weekend. So usually, it's just about as long as a movie lasts, right? A couple hours. You might be in an elevated mood as you're still with the stimuli. And then after the stimuli ends, it's like another 30 to 90 minutes. And then you're pretty much back to just maybe a feeling of contentness, maybe a feeling of fulfillment. But I don't know if you're euphorically wall-to-wall smiling happy. And that seems to be anandamide just being produced very quickly as you are happy. It moves around the body very easily. It binds very, very efficiently. And then uh, there's a chemical called FAAH, fatty acid, uh, Ananda hydrolase, I think, and uh, this attaches to it, FAAH, and metabolizes it out. It changes it into a different form, and then eventually it is turned water-soluble by the kidneys and excreted. So we don't store this. This is just on-demand, right? Comcast on-demand all day. And uh, you get a little happy, it gets produced, and then it goes away. And it can help with some other things like anti-inflammation. You know, it's, it's using a receptor, which is a multifunctional switch. And that is good old Ananda. Um, Ananda being the Sanskrit word for bliss. So they really did name it based on the uh, the feeling of euphoric high in a way. Now, when I was a kid, you know, they said that endorphins were the reason you felt a runner's high. If anything, they were trying to force you to run a lot further than you wanted to, trying to tell you you're going to be happy about it at the end. Uh, it wasn't always the case, but I did work out before enough to feel it. And then to also feel this sort of, you know, weird chemical like oh doesn't hurt nearly as much as it will uh you know it's my body pretty much trying to protect me from what i've done to it and they said it was always beta endorphins because you would do something active and then they would test your blood and say your blood's full of endorphins it must be the endorphins creating this reaction and it's not the worst corollary to draw but it doesn't mean you're right because just because there's cars on the road doesn't mean anybody's getting home So, you know, our bloodstream is the highway that things travel around our body in. But just because you're stuck in traffic doesn't mean you're eating dinner. So to imagine that, you know, you get to the cell, that you get home and get to the receptor is a different thing altogether. The transportation around the body uh, of bioactive molecules and things like that is its own study of well or as well. So... They realize that endorphins are rather large and don't seem like they cross the barriers of the bodies easily. They don't get off the turnpike. They don't get off the highway nearly as quickly as some other molecules. So it didn't seem like they were necessarily doing nearly as much of the work. Anti-inflammation, potentially, but not really the mood boost as much as they said. It actually seems that anandamide has been the culprit the whole time, getting you your runner's high, making you feel good whenever you've done heavy amounts of physical activity, enough where your body may actually kind of tank a little bit. So anandamide, as we know, it's a quick flash in the pan. And so one of the things they say, they say, is that if you were to stop anandamide from breaking down, you may be in a more stable mood. Or maybe you can maintain even an elevated mood. Because anandamide, as it binds, seems to influence or create a higher opportunity for this euphoria, right? This access to an elevated thinking. And so what you're really doing is you're making it work overtime. It's like if you had the best floor sweeper 
in the world, well, the floors would be clean longer if you didn't let that bastard go home. And so if you ever find a chemical or chemistry way to be able to prevent anandamide from breaking down as quickly as 30 to 90 minutes, then you're going to be, you know, pretty solid. The room's going to keep clean. Your mood will maintain its stability or its improvement for a little bit longer. And there are some things that affect that. We'll get into actually probably in the next episode, but it's just worth understanding that, you know, anandamide really does have a very important job in our bodies. I mean, doing what THC does, but in a better way for our constant and daily mood, memory, pain, sleep, and everything else. I mean, imagine if you don't make enough anandamide normally, you're in a bad spot. It's affecting almost every component of your life, potentially spiraling either in a positive or negative. However, if that's our internal THC, then that leaves us with one other thing to look at, which is our internal potentially CBD. And gosh, wouldn't it be awesome if it actually timed up that way? Now, although our second chemical 2AG, our other endogenous cannabinoid, our endocannabinoid, does seem to, at least in volume, be similar to tea or to a CBD. Uh, they haven't really studied it enough to be able to assert that kind of confidence. The big difference is anandamide is a flash in the pan. It's 10x sugar. It's in and it's out, uh, and it's you know you're happy for only a little bit. But 2AG, arachidonal glycerol, or sorry, glycerol, I think is what it is. Um, 2AG is in your body in concentrations over a thousand times that of anandamide. So that means it's all over the place. It's constantly in you. And whereas THC can make people feel very psychoactive, uh, CBD, you can take a lot more of that before you reach a point where it's potentially going to create um, negative biological effects. They've shown that with CBD, you can eat up to a gram and a half, 1,500 milligrams of isolated purified CBD and survive, basically. But if you were to do that with THC, you would survive, like you wouldn't die, but you would be in a really, 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 really rough spot. I would not ever recommend anybody do that sort of thing to themselves. And so we can already see in just the way the body is sensitive that we can take a lot more of this other chemical. And so 2-AG, at least in that volume, is similar because uh, it's in you all the time. If I was going to study somebody who didn't have any 2-AG, they may actually be dead because it seems to be a very intimate part of the way our body functions. Now, it's an ester formed of what they call omega-6 fatty acid, arachidonic acid, and glycerol or glycerol. And because it's all over our body, it seems to have a lot to do with neuromodulatory effects. So it does have a lot to do with the way in which we think and modulate or manage our thinking. It's also found in human milk. And for the most part in human milk, you're not going to put anything in there that doesn't need to be there because we want babies to get exactly what they need when they need it. But because this is a very kind of new science, you know, 94, 95, um, its role in the body is not fully understood. So although anandamide does seem like our THC, 2-AG, it could be our CBD. It is certainly a leading actor. If any, if anybody could be CBD, it'd be 2-AG. Uh, but there are a couple other sort of endocannabinoids there, although none of them seem to mimic CBD and THC as directly as these two. It's just one of those things that we'll have to wait for science to catch up. 
So at least those are the two major players in our bodies. And in the next episode, we'll take a look at THC and CBD and see how close they mimic these two as far as, you know, the exact sort of binding that's happening. But before we leave, just a couple more things on G protein coupled receptors for you nerds out there who really care to know. Um, these receptors, as I said, it's kind of like knocking on the door and leaving a note. But when you actually look at the receptors and how they're visibly modeled, uh, it gets even weirder. Now, I can't say I know why it's the case, but uh, CB1 and CB2 are GPCRs, and they are what's known as uh, seven transdermal GPCRs. And that's because when they zoom in on it, it kind of looks like a radiator like a cooling system where you have like this kind of up and down worm look like snake on an old Nokia cell phone. Uh, and so it crosses in and out winding through the cell membrane seven times. And it's an odd number. So if you start on the outside of the cell, go down, up, down, up seven times, the last time you're going to end in the cell. So it's kind of weird because a G protein couple receptor is kind of like a cup on a string then uh, where, you know, you have a length to it. It isn't just a door where there's somebody on the other side that can hear you exactly. It's got sort of like a phone cord where now like you kind of pick up the call on the inside of the cell. You know, you have anandamide or THC or what have you come up to the payphone and go, hey, yeah, I'm at the receptor. Uh, is anybody home? I was like, yeah, what's going on? It's like, hey, I got a message. Can you tell uh, tell Tom that he uh, has to pay $100 by Wednesday? And then the second messenger goes. So. It seems like it's, you know, getting even stranger than just a key and a lock, as you will find a lot of books describe, because the way in which the cord between those little cups of the receptor is arranged, if it's knotted, if somebody's stepping on it or pinching it, changes the way the message is received, changes whether or not you can send a message at all. You know, if you cut the cord, obviously something has happened, and if there's a knot in your line, you know, or in your breathing tube, you know, it doesn't let communication pass through it. So these are all sorts of things that they're currently thinking about with these receptors. How exactly is it that receptors aren't just all in the same state? Why is it like on a cell you could have 10,000 of them that are inoperable and 30,000 which are rampant and ready to go? And that's part of how we get high. That's part of how we interact with cannabis. So whenever, well, if you ever run into a product that you haven't tried or a new strain and you're trying to predict or describe exactly what's going to happen. Uh, definitely not going to be able to hit the nail on the head from the cellular level. Because once you see that there's like thousands of these relationships going on, these bindings. And sometimes it's your natural chemical doing it. Sometimes it's the chemical you just put in your pipe doing it. It really shows that, you know, until science gets further progress, we can't really be sure of exactly why one feeling is there and another feeling comes later or not at all. All we can do is really describe the phone cord, the highway, the way in which the communication happens. So that way, if we look long enough or we think about it enough, we may start to understand the flow of traffic and communication. Given it's all between, you know, our endocannabinoids and the cannabinoid receptors, our endogenous ligands, which are cannabinoids, and these receptors that help with the communication to get in our cells and change things. Now, for today, that's all we're going to talk about. Uh, but in the next episode, uh, we'll jump back into this madness, go over a couple things, and then look at what THC and CB do specifically at these receptor sites. And that means we're going to learn just a little bit about 
some of the science of binding itself so we can understand, you know, if I use a one-to-one pen, what should I expect versus using a two-to-one pen? Uh, why would high-strength THC be better than low-strength THC or is it better at all? And where the hell do terpenes come into all this? Do terpenes affect binding? They obviously affect something because the smells and flavors seem to dictate a lot of the experiences we have, but is it at the receptor level or is there another system going on? So you see we have a couple more things to really siphon through before we get down to the nitty gritty, but we are ever closer to the root cause of exactly how cannabis interacts with our body. But I'll leave that for our next episode. Uh, If anyone out there uh, enjoyed the content, like what you heard, please feel free to share it with a friend, like, subscribe, send me a review up on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may listen to it, Deezer, Stitcher, uh, wherever you find my podcast. It always really does help when you do. Uh, Outside of that, you can find me on Instagram at thecannabis.professor. Soon, looking forward, actually, I believe this is the 45th, maybe, episode, 44th or 45th episode that I've done on this show now. And so I'm looking forward to uh, episode 50 because I have something special planned as well. So look forward to that too. I'll uh, disclose a little bit later, add a little bit of theater to this process. But until next time, hope you all get medicated and uh, be safe out there.